And honestly, reading that at the beginning of this story is a way of reminding us that we're not just reading any story. Um, we're reading a story about how God is reversing the curse, bringing blessing where there should be judgment. And I think that's important to get in our minds as we start. Uh, if you think about how Abraham's story began back in Genesis 12, why are we even reading about Abraham? Abraham is part of God's solution to a problem. Man sinned back in Genesis 3 and brought curse into the world and made it clear through the first 11 chapters that he doesn't have the ability to fix it. Uh, he keeps running away from God, doesn't move towards God, and in spite of all the mercy God's shown him, sins in a big way in Genesis 11, and we might expect another curse from God. But instead, we turn to Genesis 12, and we read about Abram and God's promise to bless Abram and not just Abram, the whole world. And so this is the next step in the story of salvation. At the beginning, God said there's going to be a seed of the woman who's going to defeat Satan. And then God chooses Abram and makes him a number of specific promises, which we talk about every week, about giving him a particular land, about giving him descendants that are going to become a nation, and about his offspring being the means to bless the world. And we've seen God keeping those promises. And like it says here, blessing Abraham and all things. And yet, we've also seen that many of those promises are not fulfilled, which I think is part of why we have this chapter and why he doesn't just go on and talk about his death the way we might expect. He can't talk about Abraham's death yet because we still have a lingering question. And what's our question? Our question is, is Abraham's really old? And he's part of this big story about how God's reversing the curse and God's been really good to Abraham but what is going to happen when he dies? Because there's a lot more that needs to happen. Even if you think about last week, when we looked at chapter 23, we uh, talked about how God had promised Abraham land and the significance of that and saw that when Sarah died, Abraham didn't even have a place to bury her. He calls himself a sojourner in the land God told him he was going to give him. And Abraham was old at this point, which means that we're going to be here for a while. <laughs> as we look at this story God's telling, because God made Abraham a promise and he blessed him, but the full blessing and fulfillment of those promises is not going to happen in Abraham's lifetime, which is kind of obvious anyway, if we just think about some of the things God had promised Abraham uh, and what needed to happen for those promises to be fulfilled. Like one thing God promised Abraham was that his offspring needed to be as numerous as the dust of the earth, and that doesn't happen usually in one person's lifetime. And uh, he talks about them becoming a nation. And all Abraham had was Isaac. And one person doesn't really make a nation. And so while we have a lot of hope as we enter chapter 24, we also have some questions. And what's the big question that we have? The big question we have is, once Abraham dies, is God going to remain faithful to his promises? And I know that you know the answer, and that's part of the problem when you're having devotions a lot of times, is you think you know the answer, so... You don't need to, or not just you, we all are like, I know the answer, so why do I need to read it? But try to feel the importance of the question, at least. It makes the Bible a lot more interesting. Because what is the longest promise that you've kept in your life? Um, probably, hopefully, if you're married, it's the, it's the promise you made to your spouse. But humans, in general, are not really great at keeping promises over a long period of time. Um, once it gets to a couple decades, you know, we're, we're starting to tire out. And the promise God makes to Abraham is one he's going to fulfill over thousands of years. And we're 
at the beginning of that story in Genesis. And so we need some assurance about the kind of God that we serve. Is he able and, and does he want to do what he said he would do for Abraham when Abraham's not around? And we start to get the answer to that in chapter 24. That's part of why we have this long chapter, I think. We know God's committed to Abraham, but what about the people that come after him? We're going to look at the way Moses answers that question, but slowly, because he tells the story slowly, beginning in verse 2 and 3, where Moses indicates that there's a little bit of a problem. He writes, And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. So what's the problem? The problem is that Isaac doesn't have a wife. And he's 40 years old now, and he doesn't have a wife. And why is that a problem? It's a problem because you can't have a nation without children, and the whole world can't be blessed without that nation. (laughs) Um, So you might say this is an obstacle to the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And clearly, for some reason, Abraham doesn't want Isaac to marry someone from where they're living. He doesn't tell us why. But if we bring in later passages, God told the Israelites over and over not to marry Canaanites because they would end up becoming Canaanite, basically. And of course, they needed to be distinct, and so I think that's probably what's going on here. Abraham's taking action because he doesn't want that that to happen. And yet, notice who Abraham is not talking to here, because this is going to become important. Obviously, Isaac is the one who has the problem, but Abraham doesn't talk to Isaac. He talks to his servant. And this is kind of one of the distinctive things about Isaac. He's a very passive character. Things are done to Isaac or for Isaac. Isaac is offered up. Isaac, uh, you know, is, is manipulated by Rebecca. But Isaac rarely takes action on his own. He's very different than Jacob when it comes to that. If you think of Isaac and Jacob as people, Isaac is very passive. And I think God designed him that way to demonstrate that he's, he's there to continue the Abrahamic blessing. <laughs> in, this, in this story, Isaac has a problem, and Abraham has a problem, and neither of them are going to be the ones that God uses to solve it. Instead, he's going to use this servant. And we don't even get his name. He's anonymous. People think he's this man named Eliezer because he's mentioned earlier, but we, we don't really know. It doesn't say. It just says that he's the oldest of his household. And uh, maybe that means he's the servant who's worked for Abraham the longest, but he's definitely the one that Abraham trusts. It says that he had charge of everything Abraham had. And yet, Abraham's making him swear something here. This is that important. And he does so in kind of a gross way, honestly. You, if, you know, if you're having a hard day, you can always thank the Lord. You're not an ancient Near Eastern uh, person, especially if you have to make a contract. But this is a... Uh, ancient Near Eastern custom modified a little bit. Um, Nowadays, when we want to make an oath and we want to show that it's really important, we'll put our hand on a Bible and we'll swear to God. Um, And somehow putting our hand on that Bible is a way for us to demonstrate that we're really serious about this. And I guess that we're doing it before God. But they didn't have Bibles back then. And usually what pagans would do is put their hand on something related to one of their idols instead. But Abraham didn't worship idols. So uh, here is, uh, here he actually has his servant hold something that God had said was a sign of the covenant he had made with Abraham. So that's where you have to make a decision when you're doing family devotions, how much you're going to explain. And, um, 
I'm glad that we don't make promises like this anymore. Uh, but it definitely would have demonstrated that Abraham was not choking around. You know, this is this is really, really something that mattered to him if you tell your servant to come over and, and do that. Um, he wants, verse 4, uh, the, if we ever preach this on church on Sundays, we'll have a good decision to make there. Um, he wants, verse 4, the servant to go back to his country and to his kindred and to take a wife for his son Isaac. And this would have been a long, expensive trip. And the servant has kind of an objection. I don't know if it's an objection, but he just foresees a problem. Verse 5, the servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And you can understand the question. If some random servant shows up and asks a family if their daughter would move to marry someone she never met, that kind of does seem like a big ask. That does seem unlikely. And especially when you remember that Canaan was not the center of the world. So when we lived in Africa, sometimes uh, people in Pretoria, Congolese people in Pretoria especially, would want to get married to someone back from their village. So they didn't just want to marry anybody. This was very important to them. They wanted to marry somebody from their village. And the girl would move down to the city to South Africa, to Pretoria. Because the direction, that's the direction people normally want to head. They want to go from someplace they think is less prosperous to someplace they think is more prosperous. But I never saw it happen the other way around, where somebody from a village got a girl from Pretoria to come back to the village. And so uh, this servant thinks, maybe I'll need to bring Isaac back here uh, and ask Abraham about this probably because Abraham is so old and he doesn't know if Abraham will be alive when he returns. And Abraham's like, no, no, verse six. Abraham said to him, see to it. And that is like, beware, actually, in the Hebrew. Whatever you do, don't do that. See to it that you don't take my son back there. Why? Uh, maybe because of what happened a lot. At this point, Abraham knows this land is God's key to God's plan. So this is maybe a demonstration of faith on his part. Like if God tells me this land is going to be used in a significant way to fix the problems of the universe, and I believe that. I probably don't want any of my family moving from there. And that's kind of what Abraham says in verse 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. So Abraham's counting on the fact that God's going to be faithful. God took him from that land. God brought his uh, family here, and he's going to enable Isaac to find a wife. This is kind of an interesting Old Testament thing, how often it talks about the angel going before somebody, and we'll see that's actually what happens in uh, Exodus as well for the nation of Israel. But if the woman isn't willing, verse 8, then you'll be free from this promise. So there's still a little tension. Like we see Abraham's confident in God's promise, but the story's not over yet. And at this point, the service servant makes the promise and swears to do what Abraham asked. And verse 10, he gets some camels. It says, then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And uh, 10 camels is a lot. Apparently in this era, uh, most people didn't have camels, didn't have their own camels. So having 10 to take somewhere means you're really, really wealthy. And even just the way this is written is funny because we're picturing one servant with 10 camels. I can't imagine. Um, we saw dog walkers the other day with about six dogs. 
And uh, that looked so funny. Um, and the picture here is of one man with 10 camels. We'll find out later that there were some other servants with him. But the picture at the beginning, in our minds at least, is one man with 10 camels. But he's got all these gifts that he's got to take. And uh, yet Moses doesn't tell us much about the journey. It was a long journey, but he tells us nothing about it. Pretty dangerous, actually. Um, all those kings and warlords and raiders um, and all those gifts and camels that he was taking. But he doesn't tell us anything about the journey. He's with Abraham. He makes the promise. He gets the camels. And then verse 11, suddenly he's there. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women went out to draw water. And this is kind of important, what we're about to read here. So we've got a man at a well looking for a wife, which kind of makes sense practically because that's where uh, the young ladies would go in those days. They would send the young ladies out to get water. And so uh, you can imagine the servant coming up with a plan. He wants to find someone to talk to about marrying Isaac, so he's going to go to a well where the young ladies are. And yet, this is a story that is going to be repeated as we keep reading our Bibles. So we're going to find men at wells talking about marriage with women. And um, can you think of any other stories where that happens? Uh, yeah, that's the ultimate one. If you want to really fast forward, that's where the real punchline exclamation point comes. But you have uh, Jacob in Genesis 29. You have Moses in Exodus. There's another story somewhere in the Old Testament. And then Jesus. But they repeat. And when you find stories in the Bible that repeat, what do you do? You just fast forward to the next story because you think, I read this before. No, you look for things that are different. So when you find a story in the Bible that repeats, it's not an accident. You look for what's different. And we've got a few things that are different in this story. And the first is that in the other stories, it's Jacob who's at the well. It's Moses who's at the well. And in this story, it's not Isaac who's at the well. It's the servant. And that's important. And in other stories, Jacob and Moses are taking action to overcome a problem at a well. So Jacob has to move a stone. Moses has to uh, deal with some rowdy shepherds. But clearly here, Isaac's n not doing anything because the servant is the one at the well with the camels. And what does the servant do? He prays, which sounds obvious to us, but there's not a lot of praying going on in the book of Genesis. So if you think about the last time you saw somebody pray in Genesis, there's not a lot of recorded prayer. So this is a big moment. We've got a problem. Abraham's going to die. There's no, Isaac doesn't have a wife, so there's no nation. We've got a question, is God going to keep the plan going? We've got a servant, and what does he do? He goes to God, and what does he say? Verse 12, and he said, to the, he said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. So whose name is being emphasized here? Abraham, right? Abraham's name is there twice. God of my master Abraham, show steadfast love, covenant-keeping love, you could say, to my master Abraham. How? Verse 13. Behold, look, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, 
and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you've appointed for your servant Isaac. So that's pretty specific. And what does he think God answering this prayer is going to demonstrate? He says, by this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. I think you're actually kind of getting the idea of the story there, like if you were a preacher. Abraham's not here. Isaac's not here. The only person who's here is a servant. And he's praying on behalf of Abraham. And he's asking God to act in that moment in a very specific way to demonstrate that he's really committed to the promise that he made to Abraham, even when Abraham's far away, which is a very important question. The whole Bible hangs on it. Your whole internal future hangs on it. And what does verse 15 say? Before he had finished speaking, behold. And I love the way, I love it when a writer does this. He's done this before. Somebody will say to God, like, hey, God, look, or look at me. And then it's almost like God will say right away, no, 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 you look, you look. And what do we see? We see God answering his prayer even before he's finished. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Now, does the servant know who she is at this point? So no, he doesn't. So why does the author tell us? He's given us a hint of what's about to happen because he's already prepared us for this moment. If you go back to chapter 22, the end of chapter 22 seems a little boring because it's about Milka's children, Abraham's brother's children, and you wonder, why is he telling me this, all these names? He tells us mostly about his children, and then about one grandchild, verse 23, Bethuel fathered Rebekah, and he tells you that for this, like, remember that name. You're going to see her again, and we see her here, and she's beautiful, verse 16, the young woman was very attractive in appearance. That's the same word for like God saw the earth and it was very good. So the young woman was very good in appearance. A maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her. He's really excited. He's the oldest servant in uh, Abraham's household. So he's probably pretty old and he's running after this long trip because he wants to give his prayer request a try. Like, is this going to work? Verse 17, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And how does she respond? Uh, first of all, how's she supposed to respond? Verse 14, drink and I will water your camels. But how does she respond? Verse 18, drink, my Lord. And then she stops. So that's like a pause, like a little dramatic tension, like, wait, is this going to be the one? Because she only said half of it. Moses continues, and she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And for some reason, even though this seems like a long chapter, everything about this is fast. The servant runs to her. She quickly lets down her jar. She doesn't even think about it, in other words. And what happens, verse 19, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking, which is a huge moment uh, because it seems like an answer to prayer, but it's also going to be a lot of work for Rebecca, like a lot of work. Because camels drink about 25 gallons of water to replenish the amount of weight they, they've lost. And it takes about 10 minutes for them to drink that amount. Uh, I mean, I've, I haven't watched myself, but you probably could find a YouTube video on it, I'm sure. But uh, that's what scholars say. And so a normal water jar at the time would have been, uh, it would have had the capacity of about three gallons. So I don't know who the math whizzes are here. But a three-gallon jar, 10 camels, at 25 gallons a piece is going to take a little while, especially if they 
They take about 10 minutes. So that sounds, it almost sounds like a word problem. But she's going back to, and forth to the spring over 80 times. And she's running. It says she runs. Look at verse 20. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trowel and ran against the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. So in the other stories, the men are solving the problems. Jacob moves the stone. Moses fights the shepherd, shepherds. But here it's Rebecca who's doing all the work. And the servant's just watching her. Verse 21. So, oh God, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. In silence for probably about an hour as he just like. <laughs> old men, old. <laughs> I think he should have known at that moment, like, wow. But it's not done yet. The story's not done yet. So he's just watching and wondering, is God going to be faithful? And that's an important question. You can understand why he's asking it. If I send you somewhere across the world and ask you to do something so specific, like find something really rare in this city, and you've never been there, and you're not allowed to use the internet to find it, I tell you, and I tell you, God's going to be with you, and he's going to keep the promise he made to me. And so you're just supposed to depend on God when you're in Istanbul to find this ancient um, Turkish feather held by you know, Ahmed somewhere, you're going to probably have some, some questions like, is the Lord really going to do this or not? Like, seriously. Because Rebecca's helping him, and that looks good, but there are a lot of things he doesn't know. First of all, uh, we give Rebecca good intentions, and I think she probably had them, but understand, this man standing there with 10 camels and all those gifts on those camels is looking a lot like somebody leaning on his Lamborghini, you know, at a at a bar, if you know what I'm saying. And uh, we know she's a maiden, and she's not married, and all that, but he doesn't know. So there's still some work to be done. And verse 22, he's got a plan. First gifts. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels. And those are pretty significant gifts, apparently. It's not like a tip for help. <laughs> he's clearly indicating he's got some intentions. But he needs to find out if she's married. And so he asks her a question, verse 23. Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And they didn't have, like, hotels back then, so hospitality was really important. And the key there is daughter and father's house. Because if she's married, she's going to talk about her husband. And she doesn't, verse 24. She said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor, she had, and then she added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend that night. And, and that tells you about their culture. Family ties are important. Like if I ever asked you, who are you? And you're like, I am the daughter of, and like you even talk about your grandfather. That's, that tells you the way they thought about themselves. And it also indicates maybe a little bit of a problem. Like how is he going to get her to leave if her family ties are that important? But he's hopeful, and for good reason. He's come all the way, and the first girl he meets is who he needed to meet, someone from Abraham's family. And he responds, verse 26, The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who's not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. And that must have had some sort of impact on her, listening to him talk. It definitely told her something about who uh, Abraham worshipped. And uh, 
we hear that and we're learning because this seems like a roundabout way of getting Isaac a wife, but God's organizing this to demonstrate something about himself to the people watching, and that is that he's faithful. He's going to keep his promise to Abraham even when Abraham's not there. And he's sovereign. This didn't just happen. He led the servant in the way to the house. And I think we've got to get some of this back in our lives. We sometimes live as if God were so far removed from everyday activity, but he's not. He is involved all the way down to who you meet at a well. (laughs) And the servant acknowledges that, and we should too. We should pray specifically and then worship God for the way he acts. And he does, and verse 28, Moses says, then the young woman did what? Walked? Oh, she ran again. Uh, this, this girl is an athlete, and she told her mother's household about these things. And she's running. What's interesting about that, the way he writes that? This is just fun for, the Bible's a lot more, it's just a lot more interesting if we really notice, but she runs to her mother's household. So what's interesting about that way he says that? Because he asked about her father, and here he points out her mother. And I don't know why. Maybe the father wasn't as involved as you, wouldn't, as you would expect. But notice, uh, once she tells them about the servant, it's not even the father who goes out to meet him. It's her brother, verse 29. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. And if we know anything about Laban from the rest of Genesis... We're starting to feel a little tense at this point. Uh, and this is, if this were a movie, this is where like the scary music comes in, or at least the su- suspicious m- music. But we don't know much about him yet, though Moses gives us a hint. Uh, Laban ran out toward the man to the spring, and again with the running. Everybody's running. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And the way he puts that, we're a little suspicious. That's the point. He sees the rings, he sees the bracelet, and he's like, ah, let me go talk to this guy. I got a good feeling about this. And look at what he says in verse 31. He says, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I prepared the house and a place for the camels. And so he acknowledges that Yahweh's blessed him, which sounds good, but we're wondering about Laban because he seems a little schmoozy, if you know what I'm saying, like, Uh, What are you doing here? Come in, come in. I've done all this work to get the house ready for you. When we know that he went running pretty much once he saw the rings and the bracelets on Rebecca. But the man comes, verse 32, unharnesses the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. And that's the first time we meet the men who were with the servant. We thought he was kind of there by himself, but we see there were people who came on the journey with him. And, And then they want to feed him, verse 33. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I've said what I have to say. Uh, So this is an urgent matter to him. It looks good, but he knows it's not over yet. And so someone tells him to speak on, verse 34, and he says, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he's become great. He's given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, camels and donkeys, And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he's given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. And that's interesting because it gives us more details uh, to fill in the picture of what verse 1 meant when it said the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things because it shows us how he looked to someone on the outside. He was greatly blessed. He was great. He was wealthy. He had a son when it was impossible. 
And he's also showing his wisdom. If you look at what Abraham told him and what he says, he leaves certain things out that he knows would have made the negotiations a little more difficult. Uh, if you look at verse 39, specifically, he says, I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I've walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife from my son, from my clan, my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. And what does he leave out that's really smart to leave out? He leaves out the part about not promising about, he leaves out the part about promising not to bring Isaac back there. Why? I think probably because he knows that would be offensive. Like, uh, you, want our, you want us to let our daughter go with you to that, like, no-name land. Uh, but why won't Isaac, uh, Abraham let Isaac come back here? Who do, you know, who does, who, who, we, we stayed, Abraham left. I think it might be like if you were an immigrant and you went back to try to get a wife for, for, uh, for your son, and then you told their family, there's no way that uh, that, that boy's coming back to here, to Korea or to China. He's, he's staying in the United States. People might be a little bit like, oh, yeah, who do you think you are? So he's a, wise, he's a wise servant. He knows what to say, and he knows what to leave out. And he's making it clear, this is God at work. Abraham says that God, or the servant says God is going to prosper his way. And he explains how he did that in verse 42. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you're prospering the way that I go, behold, look, I'm standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw the water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink. And he will say to me, drink, and I'll draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. And we don't like repetition in stories usually. That's where we're like, especially if you're like a kid. And, uh, but it, it would have been helpful to the people listening because this was an oral culture. And also it says something. Like when something really important happens, I often will repeat it because I really want the people listening to understand how big it is. And this is big. He makes this very specific prayer and he says, before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her water jar on her shoulder and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, who Milka bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelet on her arms, which I think is awkward to put a ring on somebody's nose, but that was the culture, I suppose. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. So he's really set this up. He's like, that's what God's done. What are you going to do? Verse 49. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right or the left. So he's like laying it down. And this is really some servant. I don't know if this is like an example story, giving us wisdom in terms of how we should be servants to God. Maybe. It seems like it. Um, he's focused. I'm going to do what Abraham wants me to do. I'm a man on a mission. I have one job. It's to be faithful to Abraham. Like we should be faithful to God. And at this point, Laban and Bethuel do something pretty unusual. So the dad is there finally. Uh, they listen and they say, we don't have an option. This is from God. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, 
The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah's before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord had spoken. Which seems like a pretty good response. Though, of course, nowadays we're like, uh, but like, did you ask Rebecca? <laughs> what about Rebecca? Um, somebody told me the other day about the fact uh, that they only talked to their wife a week before they got, uh, or they only met their wife a week before they got married because they had an arranged marriage. So this still happens. Um, but this is even a little intense for that. And uh, we're wondering, what does Rebecca think about this? And we're going to get an answer to that, verse 52. The, the servant bows low and worships again. This is like the third time we've read him doing this. It's clear with all this worship that God's the one who's behind all that, and that's the point. But Moses says, when Abraham's servant heard their wor words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebecca. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they aroused in the morning, he said, send me away to my master, which is quick, because it's like one night, and he's like, let's go. And that was a long trip, so you could imagine him wanting to take a couple nights to at least rest the camels or something. But imagine also being Rebecca, like one that you just met the guy at the well, like yesterday. <laughs> and her brother and her uh, mother now get a little unsure. Dad's wherever, you know, wherever this dad was. <laughs> Uh, her mother and her brother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. And that makes sense. Um, but later we, we learned something about Laban. And so this also could be one of his tricks. You know, he's, he, uh, he kind of plays games with Jacob later. But the servant, he won't listen, verse 56. But he said to them, do not delay me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. And again, he's highlighting the main point so we don't miss it. The Lord has prospered his way. God's the one at work here. And finally, they put it in Rebecca's court. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. Maybe because they think there's no way. <laughs> and they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go away with this man? She said, I will go. Which is awesome, right? And it's a little bit like who? Who does that, who does Rebecca remind you of? Abraham. There's actually something in their names. I don't, I don't know enough to know, but there's something in their names that's really similar, Rebecca and Abraham. But this is, her actions are definitely like Abraham. She's heard about God blessing Abraham. She's heard about God being behind this marriage. And she responds like Abraham. God says to go, so I'll go. I'll go to this foreign land. I'll leave my family. She actually's. She leaves her family, and uh, they send Rebecca away, and they bless her as they do. And this blessing is important because it echoes God's blessing of Abraham, verse 60. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. And I don't know, but this kind of feels like genius to me. I, 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 lately, I've just been so struck by how genius the Bible is. Um, because Isaac's so passive, and there's a point. The whole reason he exists is to continue Abraham's blessing. Uh, God doesn't want there to be any doubt that it's not about, it's, it's about, it's not about what the person does. This guy is so passive. His main purpose is to continue Abraham's blessing. But he is going to make some poor decisions in the future. 
He's going to favor Esau, if you remember, over Jacob. And we're kind of getting a hint here that we should be looking to Rebekah if we really want to understand how God's acting. Rebekah ends up being a bigger hero than, than Isaac. And Moses tells us, verse 61, she arises and rides on the camels and follows the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. So God's been faithful. But what about Isaac? It says, now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai, Beer Lahai, Roy, and was dwelling in the Negev, which is actually um, where Ishmael lived. So I don't know if he was over there visiting his, his brother or something. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward the evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. And this is actually kind of funny, because the word for dismounted is more like she fell off. So the Hebrew word it would be probably more faithful to translate it, she fell off her camel, which must have been painful. Uh, and I, I, she probably fell off because it's not easy to get off a camel if you think about it. So this is like, you know, a Hallmark movie, except with a little comedy added <laughs> as uh, Rebecca falls off the camel onto the sand. And she talks to the servant when she dusts herself off, I suppose. Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And you get the idea that she might be hoping, and you think she probably was wondering the whole trip, like, you're probably 15, 16 years old and going across the world with some old servant who doesn't seem to talk a lot, like he sat there for an hour while you were feeding the camels. <laughs> not saying anything. And he does give you the feel that like he's kind of like one of those butlers who just like does his thing. Like the next day, he's ready to go back to Abraham. So uh, she's probably maybe asking him questions the whole time. He's like, be quiet, girl. And uh, she sees this guy in the field. She's maybe hoping, is who's that man? And he says, it's my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And this is something that scholars don't know why she did that. I, I'm not, I don't know why she did that. Maybe that was just the way they did it back then. Maybe it's a sign of modesty or something. Um, I guess it sort of will help you understand why uh, Jacob didn't know about Leah, <laughs> Leah, 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 Leah later, however you say her name. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death, which is really a sweet way to end. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis explains, he says, what's at stake here in Isaac getting a wife? Why? The whole promise and kingdom plan of God. There will be no people of God in this world if Isaac doesn't marry and start having kids. But... What else does this text show us? Did you hear the last line of verse 67? The story is not only about Yahweh's plan, but about human need. Isaac is not a mere cog in God's plan for the world, but he is a hurting person for whom God cares. And why does he hurt? He misses his mother. He aches because of her death and absence. There may well have been a very close bond between Isaac and Sarah. And there seemed, uh, this seems like there was, if you think about the way she acted when he was uh, weaned and how mad she got at the way Hagar was acting. She definitely seemed like, and she was an older mom, so you can imagine he was the answer to all her prayers. And what does God do? 
He gives Isaac someone to love, a wife, Rebekah, and someone to love him back. Yahweh stooped down to fill up the hole in Isaac's life. Yahweh is the God of the big plan and the individual need. The huge emotional vacuum in Isaac's life mattered to Yahweh. When you're in the covenant people of God, you're not lost in a crowd. God has his eye on keeping his promises and solving the problems of the world and being faithful to the promise that he made to Abraham thousands of years ago. And in the middle of that, he also has his eye on you and is a sovereign God who is able to orchestrate the details of life to keep his big promise and to care for you as you're hurting. And so Genesis chapter 24 is a long chapter and maybe at first seems like a little mundane, but actually has a lot to say to us about God. He's the God who made a promise and will will keep it. We can we can definitely count on that. Thanks guys.